This podcast may contain adult language and situations, graphic, gory details, and other not-so-nice things. Listener discretion is advised. I'm Ashley, and this is United States of Murder. We're back! And this week, we're in Oregon, doing things a little different. Lacey is in quarantine, so she is going to do this episode without me. But we'll be crossing over with the one and only true crime cat lawyer. I'll be back next week with my case for Oregon, my attempted ghost hunt in Texas, and more randomness. So buckle up and join Lacey on her dark and twisted ride through the Beaver State. So today I'm here with Elise from True Crime Cat Lawyer. You may remember her from the episode we did on season one. It was an Oregon case and it was with Di- about Diane Downs. I'm glad it wasn't with her. <laughs> Correct. It was definitely not with her or anywhere near her. So you're very familiar with the Pacific Northwest. Yes. And more specifically, Oregon is where I grew up. Um, and so I'm definitely very familiar with Oregon. And so I'm excited to head back there with you again. Me too. And you live in Washington now, right? Yes. I thought that was the case. So the correct way to say it is Oregon. Yes. Not Oregon. Yes. I've or heard Oregon is also oh, not correct. Oh, I was like, that's <laughs> that would really surprise me. So Oregon. Oregon. It's like two syllables. Oregon. Okay. Wow. <laughs> You learn new things every time. I'll have to remember that. So when you brought this case to our attention a while back, I had never heard of it before. Where did you learn about it? So I just came across it when I was doing kind of one of my random Amazon book searches, because I feel like a lot of times you can get really good like ideas for cases, finding like what books are out there. And it's just like a good place to start. And so I just happened to come across this. And the reason I kind of picked it out is one, it happened in Oregon, but two, it was written by the person's attorney. So I feel like that's like a really interesting perspective that you don't often get in a lot of cases. And so um, I was like, this sounds really interesting, but I'm definitely super surprised that like, I don't have any recollection of this case Hmm. either because it seems I mean, at least the way like the book painted it, it seemed like it was a really big deal at the time, but I surely do not remember it. So you read the whole book? I did. Wow. Okay. So I read, I didn't read the whole book, but I found the book too called Finishing Machine, Road Rage, Murder, or Self-Defense, A Train Killer's Fight for Justice. Gives everyone a sneak peek into what (laughs) we're talking about, but I didn't read it, but I did stumble upon his website. And he has a lot of excerpts on there. And then also on Amazon, you can read some of it, but it's, it is interesting. Do you feel like, I don't know how to put it. Can his, uh, can his story be trusted completely? If that makes sense, since he was his defense attorney. Yeah. So that's something like I kind of put in to my section and my notes is that um, I really only used this book as like my primary Mm -hmm. source. And part of that was just because there was just so much information about like the part I like, which is like the trial, the legal part, but there actually was a lot of information. That's just kind of like historical background information 
on Gerald. And so I think there's definitely, especially towards the end, there's a lot of like defense bias, but I also think he does a really good job at saying in the book that there's like just bias on all sides. And he readily like calls out his own bias about the case, which I think makes him a little bit more credible um, because he's willing to do that. The only thing I will say, and I'll come back to it at the end, is I haven't seen him comment on the most recent things that have happened with Gerald. And so I do wonder about that a little bit, but right, we, can, right. we can talk about that later. I'm not into MMA or UFC. Are you? I'm By not. Chance? <laughs> so my husband is, and I asked him if he knew who this guy was. He didn't. It was probably just a little. He only got into UFC watching it on TV. He doesn't fight, but a few years ago, I think. So he didn't know who this guy was, but he also does not like true crime. But I'm like, I think you might like this episode. You know, it's let's just dive in. Yes. Gerald Ray Strebent was born in LA on March 1st of 1979, and he went on to join the United States Marine Corps. He was a sniper who served two tours of duty in Afghanistan as a Blackwater mercenary. After this, he took his fighting talents to compete in MMA matches. So Gerald is known for being the first student of the world-renowned Brazilian jiu-jitsu practitioner, that's a mouthful, Eddie Bravo, who I also didn't know who that was, but he's a big deal in the MMA world, apparently, from what I read online. So Gerald adopted Eddie's rubber guard and twister game. So the rubber guard is sometimes referred to as mission control. It's a jujitsu technique that involves breaking down the opponent into a rubber guard while maintaining a level of control. The twister is a specific spinal lock submission hold. So I looked at pictures of this. This just looks like something out of a Kama Sutra book. But again, I don't know anything about professional fighting. But even when I walk in and see my husband watching MM or UFC, I'm like, what are they doing? It all looks anyway. In 2004, Gerald became the first fighter to execute a twister in an MMA match against Dave Elliott at a Cage Warrior show. So fighters are usually given a nickname and Gerald's was the finisher. Sounds pretty scary. He had a nine to seven win loss, which included an appearance in UFC 44 when he faced off against the then unbeaten Josh Thompson. He was a lightweight who won all of his fights by submission. He was just five, nine and 154 pounds. So a small guy, very fit, but very, very small. Not long after this, he would be in the spotlight again, but for more sinister reasons. In 2005, he became the key witness in the trial of Rafael Torres. Torres' real name was Ralph Barthel, and Ralph found out that his wife was cheating on him with a man named Brian Richards. So he offered Gerald $10,000 to kill Brian. So he basically wanted him to be his hitman. Well, Gerald refused, and Ralph ended up committing the murder. A few days later, Ralph told Gerald that he killed Brian in self-defense with a rear naked chokehold. He asked Gerald to give him an alibi, but Gerald refused. A year later, Gerald voluntarily went forward to the detectives about this. Not sure why he waited so long, but at least he eventually went forward and Ralph ended up being convicted of the murder and was sentenced to life in prison without the possibility of parole. 
but this was not the last the world would hear about Gerald. On January 29th, 2014, he got into a traffic collision in Springfield, Oregon, with another driver named David Paul Crowfoot. He called 911 to report the incident. He told the operator that the other car hit him on purpose. During the call, Gerald told David to back away and not to go anywhere near him. While Gerald was still on the phone, a shot was fired. Following the shooting, Gerald was cuffed and taken into custody, but he was released later that night. He said that he shot the man in self-defense, but carrying a loaded rifle in your car is illegal in Oregon, Oregon, and David was unarmed during the altercation. So that about sums it up before his trial. Yeah. So I appreciate you going through the backstory. It's it's definitely super interesting and kind of colors everything that happens kind of after that. Um, so I wanted to start with the timeline just super quick because I think it frames everything that happens later. But I also, until the book got into the timeline, I didn't realize how fast everything was that night. So around 7.30 p.m., Gerald left his gym. I think, at least from the way it sounded, it was like a gym he owned. It wasn't just like he was working out at a gym. He actually owned the gym. Um, So he leaves the gym, and then he went grocery shopping. He was planning on having kind of a romantic dinner with his fiance when he got home. And this grocery store was about a mile away from where the accident occurred. So about 23 minutes later... We know this because there's a, you know, when you get your receipt and you check out at the grocery store, it always has a timestamp and a date stamp. So the timestamp on the receipt says 7.53 is when he checked out of the grocery store. And then three minutes later at 7.57, that's when Gerald calls 911 and the recording starts because I think you've probably seen this in other cases. They start recording like the minute you call 911. Right. Even mm-hmm. if you're not like saying anything, even if you're not like doing anything, like the minute you call 911, they're recording you. Mm-hmm. And so it re- starts recording at 757. And then at 759 is when the shot that killed Crufit was fired. So between leaving the grocery store to shooting Crufit, there was four minutes that passed. And that just like blows my mind because it it can feel like a lot of time when you're like just right. sitting silently for four minutes. But when something like is just so happening so quickly, like everything that they talk about that happens leading up to it, it's like that four minutes must have just like flown by. Oh, yeah. So... Of course, the question is, how did everything go so wrong in those four minutes? A lot of the the way I'm going to kind of frame this is from Mike's perspective, because he's the one who's obviously like writing the book and telling kind of the story of Gerald. And so he's an attorney in, I think it was Springfield, Roseburg area, Eugene, but they also had offices in Portland. It's his law firm with his wife, who also is his partner in the law firm. And they have, you know, kind of a team of attorneys. And one of the attorneys that worked in the office as an associate actually knew Gerald from the gym. And so that's kind of how he got referred to Mike Arnold. At the time they first spoke to each other, 
like you had mentioned, he was taken into custody, but he was released and he wasn't held. So at the time he's first speaking to Mike, there's no charges filed. No grand jury had been convened. There was nothing criminal pending for Gerald at the time. It was like this event happened. He probably went to the police station and, you know, gave a statement like we normally see. And then they probably said, you know, we'll be in touch or whatever they say. Um, So their initial meeting happened about two days after the shooting. So still relatively quickly, but again, nothing had really happened that um, would kind of would be normal quote unquote, that we would see like an arrest, an indictment, that kind of thing. So Gerald, after this first meeting is, you know, very much interested in having Mike represent him. He comes off really well, all of that. And so because there were no charges filed yet, Mike's initial strategy was to kind of prevent charges from coming forward. And the reason that they were trying to move so quickly is because even though there weren't any charges filed, it kind of came well-known really quickly what had happened and who was involved. And Mm -hmm. because he was a well-known, you know, sort of MMA fighter, people tend to be a little bit more, um, what I want to say, there's a a little bit more public pressure for charges to be filed and for like things to move in a certain way. And so I think Mike kind of recognized that from the get-go that this was going to be a more high profile case and they needed to get out ahead of things. And so he mentions in the book, like for the average case that he represents, he is almost never on a case before anything really even happens, which I thought was interesting. Um, And again, I mean, this case was a media cluster from the very beginning. You know, you have a lot of, again, it's, I don't want to like put celebrity status on him, but you know, someone that's more prominent. He's in the public eye. Right. And so people are like very interested. I think there's a lot of assumptions that are made about somebody being an MMA fighter and, you know, like the, was this Roy rage, you know, on top Mm -hmm. of road rage, you know? And so I think there was a lot of that, like this guy was a loose cannon. Like, why is he carrying a gun around? Like all of those kinds of things. And so the first thing that Mike wanted to do was kind of like what you were talking about at the beginning is, was Gerald telling the truth? And I don't think it was necessarily like we need to concretely identify that he's telling the truth. I think it was more or less like, is his story plausible? Like, is this a plausible sequence of events that happened? You know, because I think if we're looking at it from a jury perspective, obviously if somebody says to you, like a UFO came down and like grabbed the gun out of my hands and like the alien shot him, like people, people probably aren't going to believe that. And it's going to be really hard to prove. Um, But I think if you have sort of this like plausible sequence of events that lines up with the evidence, you you have a better shot at sort of getting to the truth. Like it may not end up being the truth, but 
at least if you can like get there, I think that's what he was really looking for. So one of the first things he did was hire a forensic accident reconstructionist, which was interesting for me just because I usually think of them as being in like car accidents, which sounds kind of dumb because it was a car accident in this case, but because it went to like the level it did, I wouldn't have even thought about that. But basically the car accident is what started like the chain of everything else. And so they wanted to find out, you know, again, did the tire tracks, all that um, kind of support what Gerald was saying. And then the second thing that Mike wanted to do was get out there right away before things even happen, because the police were already, you know, doing their investigation and interviewing witnesses. So Mike wanted to do the same. So he hired a private investigator. And then of course, you know, he kind of made a to-do list of things that were going to be necessary if it went to trial. So they would need somebody that was a firearms expert to kind of talk about that. Somebody who was a psychologist who could kind of talk about PTSD and kind of more particular to the military, because Gerald is coming from that background of being in the Marines and being a Blackwater mercenary. So it's a very different psyche that he has compared to kind of like the average person. Yeah. yeah. And so it's, I think that's a very crucial part because it, again, really frames how Gerald sees the world because he's not going to see it like you and Mm -hmm. I would necessarily Um, just because of that training, that background, that expertise, you know, you and I aren't like mercenaries. And so like, we don't have this, like in this situation, you and I might not have reached for a gun to like protect ourselves, but somebody like Gerald with that kind of background, maybe this was reasonable for him. Didn't really think about that. Yeah. That makes sense. Not saying it's right, but you know what I mean? It's just, he was trained Mm -hmm. for shooting. I mean, yeah. And I think, you know, I personally don't own any guns and I've only shot a gun like once. And so for me, like grabbing a gun wouldn't, even if I like owned one, it wouldn't necessarily be like second nature to me because I'm not super familiar with it. So I feel like I would cause more harm to myself or to someone else than like is necessary. So again, like somebody that's well-trained in it though, you know, they're going to know how to use it. Like where to shoot all those kinds of things. The other thing that I thought was interesting is he wanted to develop kind of a media plan. And so because there was all this information coming out about Gerald and this accident, and it was framed really negatively about Gerald, what he wanted to do was kind of get Gerald's story out there. Um, Because again, like, in this sense, it wasn't necessarily about getting the the quote unquote truth out. It was more about let's get a balanced information, a more unbiased kind of point of view out there, um, or at least, like I said, balance it, kind of even the scales, because essentially what Mike felt like was happening is the jury pool was being poisoned or tainted against him because they were only getting kind of this one-sided story. And I can kind of see it from his side where you would want, again, a more balanced, like, I want to hear like what I'm going to hear in the trial. Like I want to hear everything 
and then I can make my determination. Like, I don't want to hear just one side or the other. Like, it creates a lot of problems for, I mean, we see this in cases all the time. I'm sure you've seen where you just hear like the horrible things about this person. Like I'm thinking particularly of like Mm -hmm. Casey Anthony, where, you know, she's a bad mom. Like she was out partying, like all this, like one-sided story kind of thing. So people are already like hating her going into things. And so because the jury is being pulled from such a small area you know, it's like, you're already kind of like, it's, it's one of the things that's like frustrating about the jury system is that we all are just inherently biased. And I think sometimes you can just be like subconsciously biased just based on what you hear, you know, in the news and stuff. Like, yeah, you, you don't even realize like what's happening. And so he did that media plan. Cause again, you know, it was really about kind of preserving the jury and trying to make it so that right. at least if they're gonna like have information out there, they're going to have all the information. So there was a little bit of talk about having Gerald testify at the grand jury, but there were some ground rules that Mike kind of put in place that the DA really didn't want to de- deal with. And one of those was kind of limiting his testimony to just a very specific time where Gerald gets out of his truck and then leading up to like what makes him pull the trigger. And the DA was not about that. He wanted to be able to kind of ask him about anything. He didn't want Gerald to be able to kind Mm. of confer with his attorneys. He didn't want Gerald's testimony recorded He didn't want Gerald to be able to listen to his 911 call before. Mm -hmm. So basically, Mike was kind of like, you know, if we're not going to get any of these conditions, it really isn't safe for you to testify. Because one of the other big things is that the grand jury proceedings are secret. And at this time in Oregon, the defendant could only be invited to those proceedings if or could only be a part of those proceedings if they were invited by the district attorney. Otherwise, they have Hmm. no like recourse or right to be there. But even if the defendant is invited, their attorney is not allowed to be there, like inside the proceedings. Like they can be at the courthouse, but they can't actually be in the proceedings. And so Mike felt like there was no real way to preserve, you know, Gerald's rights and he wouldn't be able to counsel him. And so it, it was a lot more negatives than positive in that way. So once the grand jury was convened, they, you know, indicted Gerald and he was quickly arrested and he was remanded to custody in the Lane County jail. And that's where he stayed for a really long time, like almost two years. He stayed there. One of the, the things that Mike is looking at when he kind of, starts getting the evidence, which is the next kind of big thing that happens in a case after somebody's indicted and arrested, they then get access to all of the evidence that the state has. And so Mike starts, you know, going through the file, which the case had only been open for about two months, but there was a lot of evidence in there, which I was surprised about. There were photos from the night of the shooting which like you mentioned was from 
when he was taken into custody, like right after the accident, just taking pictures of, you know, him and just like what he looked like and all of this, just kind of standard photos that you would take. Then there was the tape of the 911 call that Gerald made. And the call was about seven minutes. So it did continue after the shooting happened. And in the tape, as you had mentioned, you can hear Gerald telling the dispatcher that Gerald has the rifle in his hand and he's trying to get Crufit to stop coming towards him. But Crufit is still, right. you know, advancing on him. And you can hear him say several times, you know, stay back, sir, stay back. And then what I thought was interesting is you can't actually hear the shot being fired in the call. And the reason for that is because when the shot occurred, the first dispatcher that Gerald was on the phone with was actually in the process of switching him to a second dispatcher. And so I think there was like some kind of lag or some kind of um, just weird technical thing. I'm not really sure, but just like there was this part that was almost like dead silence, like right when the shot happened. That part I thought was really interesting. I mean, I don't know that it really changes the outcome or anything. It's just kind of, um, it's weird that that's not able to be heard on it. So, um, but I mean, obviously he was shot, you know, there's, that's not in question. Right, Um, Right. So there were like a ton of witness statements in the file, which again, for like two months, I thought was really interesting how many like people came forward, but it's also not surprising because as much of the witnesses that the police spoke to Mike in his book talks about kind of the public website that he set up for people to kind of call his office and give tips. And he basically said from like the very beginning, there were people constantly calling about Gerald and about like good stories, bad stories, like just a ton of people kind of coming out of the woodwork. And so I don't think it's super surprising that there's a lot of witness interviews and statements just because it's kind of like what we see in other cases where I think a lot of people sort of want to insert themselves. And then to some extent, like when you're looking back at hindsight after like something big, like this has happened, you're like, Oh my God, like he was roid raging this, you know, one time Mm -hmm. and it, it just frames your mindset a little bit differently. Whereas like, if this had never happened, you probably wouldn't have thought that. Right. Probably things that happened in the past, people are like, oh, he's so impulsive. And, but we all mm-hmm. can be impulsive, but it just, it does change. Yeah. It, Witness testimonies are always kind of, it's hard to take those. I don't know. Yeah. And I think part of the the issue too is that like the particular witnesses that they had, I mean, they they definitely had some that were like on the scene, but they had a lot of more of like the character kind of witnesses that were again speaking to like, oh, he has a temper or oh, he's, you know, an angry person or something like that, where what you're really focused on is like that night, that moment. And I mean, character evidence of bad acts isn't admissible in court anyway. So there were people that did testify about other 
um, kind of aggressive confrontations that they had with him. They talked about his temper and his hostility and his ex-wife. I don't know how truthful this was, but she claimed, you know, when they were still married back in 2011, that he would be involved in kind of road rage incidents like three to five times a week, which really seems excessive to me. But, you know, it's also kind of hard to take the word of an ex-spouse. Is it something like just flipping someone off when they cut them off? Or is it like he chases them down? And do we know how extreme the road rage is? Because she could be, you know, some people always have road rage when they're on their commute or whatever. That's not too out of the ordinary if he drives a lot. I think it was more along kind of the, the, I don't want to say lighter lines, but definitely like more of like the flipping off, probably like cussing in his own vehicle at the person, but like obviously not getting out, like, you know, confronting them kind of thing. Right. And I mean, I'm sure we've all been there, you know, where you get cut off in traffic Mm -hmm. or like, you know, something happens where you flip somebody off or you yell because you're mad. So, I mean, really all of this is again, just kind of clouded with people's bias, but there was one particular police report that was in the file that was really damning and possibly like really destructive to kind of Gerald's argument. So back in 2004, he had actually been involved in a really, really eerily similar similar situation with a man named Nicholas Johnson. And when I say similar, I mean like nearly identical circumstances. Oh, wow. I didn't read yeah. that anywhere. So he told police that um, the other man, Nicholas Johnson, was the aggressor in the situation. And Johnson was the one who had brandished a gun. And that's where like Gerald came in with his gun. And that's why he had his gun supposedly. So it's a little bit different circumstances just because there was actually like another weapon involved. Um, And it was also a little bit different because Johnson, I think ended up being found to be the aggressor. And so he was actually the only one charged And he got charged with reckless driving, reckless endangerment, and menacing. And so, you know, the prosecution would later, you know, decide they're not going to call him as a witness. And even despite, like, all of this character evidence of, like, his bad acts and everything like that, he had actually never been convicted of a crime, which I thought was kind of interesting just because, I mean, the way people are making it sound is, like, he's always getting into, like, altercations with people and, like, kind of flying off the handle, but he was never convicted of anything. So it's just like this weird kind of like juxtaposition. And one thing that Mike notes too, which I kind of alluded to a little bit earlier is that even if Gerald's like this terrible, like man with a temper, that's like always in road rage incidents and all that, like that's completely separate from what happened on the night of the shooting. And so you have to like separate. And that's like why we have the rules of evidence is because just because you did something bad in the past doesn't mean you're going to do something right now or you did something like with malice, Mm -hmm. I guess is what I should say, because, you know, it's yeah, he still did shoot somebody and killed somebody. But, you know, I think we see it differently between he intended to murder somebody 
versus like this was a situation that was really shitty and got escalated to you know where it ended do we know i didn't find this anywhere but do we know where he was shot was it in the head it was or in the chest? head the head okay i didn't put a lot in here because it was really graphic but it was definitely the head because of there were some descriptions in the book about the brain matter and things that were everywhere and it wow. basically like yeah. shattered um i think it was the left side of his face like it was completely gone. Mm. I don't think that that necessarily signifies anything on Gerald's part, just because with his like training and background, I could kind of see how when you're in that situation, you're not like aiming for a kill shot, but it's like, it's just almost like instinctual at that point, because that's like what you've been trained to do. But I also like, I don't know how much of like, the lighting circumstances played into it as well, because from everything that they talk about, he had, Gerald had a hard time seeing, like, that's why he thought Krufit had a gun is because of like the way the headlights were and, you know, the way the shadows were. I don't know if he was like aiming for somewhere else and it just happened to hit him. Cause I think, you know, just shooting in the dark. I don't know if you're really, um, aiming at that point or you're just trying to like stop him from coming any closer so he definitely could have been aiming somewhere else and like not realized um because i don't i didn't read anything anywhere either of whether or not gerald had kind of any idea in his mind how tall proof it was because like you mentioned gerald himself was only five nine which for a man is not super tall and so i wondered if he had like any idea of like how tall he was compared to him or like if that was a factor at all because i Mm. think also like our perceptions can also just play a role in that like maybe he just miscalculated where he was aiming one important kind of set of witnesses that the defense found was the bartenders that had been serving krufit and his wife on the night of the shooting and according to the bartenders krufit had been served around eight 16 ounce beers. So like eight pints right before the accident, it was kind of over like a three or four hour period, but Mike kind of did some calculations in his book, like based on the height and the weight and figuring out all of that, like that was still a lot of alcohol for a person of his size. Oh yeah. Um, Yeah. And so that in and of itself probably should have prevented him from driving, but obviously you know, we see people drink and drive all the time, unfortunately. Mm. So they find out that information. And the next kind of piece of their case is one that I know is really controversial with a lot of people. And it's one that's not allowed in rape trials anymore. And that's kind of putting the victim on trial. And unfortunately, Krufit had a lot to work with uh, for them. So him and his wife had actually lived in Tacoma, Washington before they moved to Springfield, Oregon. I read in Mike's book that they had actually sold their house in Tacoma on the day of the shooting. Um, and I think that that was part of like their, why they went to the bar, they were kind of celebrating that they sold their house, but they were able to find all these police reports up in Washington of domestic violence and just 
it was domestic violence between his first wife and his second wife, Brenda, who was the one with him on the night of the shooting. And it just painted a really clear picture that the relationship between Brenda and Cruffit was really rocky and it wasn't the greatest. So Mike thought that maybe there had been some arguing amongst the two of them before the accident happened. Again, just kind of looking at alternate things to give the jury of maybe what caused the accident. I think arguably the the best evidence for what caused the accident is Crufit being intoxicated, you know? Yeah. I forgot to write it down, but it is when the tox report, it was well over the legal limit to drive. So Gerald thinking that he was hitting him on purpose was probably just that he was driving erratically and it looked like it was on purpose is what I. Yeah. And so I I will get into that. So like I mentioned, he had the, you know, eight beers and obviously in hindsight, it's hard to say whether he was acting drunk or not, because, you know, his, the other problem is that his wife is a super unreliable witness because she was just as drunk as he was, if not more, because she was probably smaller. And so anything that she remembers is, you know, questionable just because not just coming from like a defense perspective, but just coming from like a person perspective, you know, I wouldn't trust the reports I'm making if I'm intoxicated, you know, (laughs) same, same. And you're easily swayed one way or the other when you're intoxicated. And I mean, to be honest, like I would be shocked if I remembered anything, if I was that drunk, you know, (laughs) Right. And some people don't. So it's, it's hard to know for sure. Right. But yeah. So like you had mentioned um, the blood alcohol level that I should note, I I'm going to say is probably like incredibly accurate because it was taken, I believe right after he passed, like when police got there and that showed that it was actually twice the legal limit. So very intoxicated. But on top of that, he also had a fixer in his system, which is used to treat, you know, mental health conditions like depression and, and anxiety and um, can be used to treat uh, manic episodes in some people. Nothing wrong with having this drug in your system, but most doctors say you shouldn't be mixing that with alcohol. So that's a problem. The other problem, though, is Mike had his own kind of pharmacologist review the levels in his system. And according to that pharmacologist, the levels were incredibly high for even if somebody was taking like this medication regularly, the level that was in his system was not consistent with kind of somebody regularly taking this medication. And their pharmacologist felt like between the high level of Effexor and the blood alcohol level, that could explain a lot of his aggressive behavior. You know, he wasn't himself basically. But what's interesting is I didn't really see anything, at least in the book, about whether it was something that was prescribed to Crufit. Or if it was some, I mean, I don't really know how you would take that rec- recreationally. Well, I'm actually so on a fixer. Okay. Yeah. So I don't, 
obviously the, and I do drink as well, but obviously the doses probably have a big factor in it. I'm on a lower dose. So maybe some people don't have any side effects when they drink. Some people do. So I feel like it's one of those things where people that knew him probably did, but effects are, at least from my experience, no one's taking it recreationally. You know what I mean? (laughs) Like it doesn't make you feel high or like good. You know, it doesn't. And like for, for, for me, the first four weeks I took it, I felt terrible. So it's not really, it's not like Xanax right. or, you know what I mean? If, if he was taking it recreationally, I would be very yeah. confused and surprised. <laughs> yeah. It's definitely, it's so, not like I mean, one of those. He was probably yeah, prescribed and that's kind it. of what I was thinking yeah, too. It's not fun. Just because it's not one of those you hear like oxy or like hydrocodone or something like that where, yeah. you know, I, or even just like Adderall or, you know, there are definitely drugs yeah. that people do take recreationally and that you hear about all the time. Right, but right. I feel like for the most part, I don't know, like you were saying, anyone that takes like anxiety or depression oh. medication recreationally. I no. don't know. It wouldn't be a good time unless, yeah, no. So yeah, I, I assume he was also prescribed it, but I didn't see that they ever like delved into that or, um, figured that out, but it's also possible. Like you said Mm. there, I mean, people are all so different. And so it could be that like that amount of alcohol plus his regular effects are just like sent him over the edge. So just a just a reminder, you know, if you are gonna drink and take your effects surge, make sure you use caution and don't drive if you've had eight beers. That's yeah, that's the yeah, that's, that's the, the big, big takeaway. Take yeah, don't, don't drink and don't drive. drive. So next, I kind of want to talk about the accident scene because I think that's a big part of. I mean, again, it's kind of the crux of what gets us to the shooting itself, and it plays a really big role in Crufit's intent that then leads to like Gerald's reaction. So based on the, the lack of tire marks on the pavement, the police's reconstruction expert felt that Gerald's truck had been completely stopped when Crufit crashed into the back of his truck. So that's what law enforcement's expert hmm. is saying. But when the the expert issued, um, I believe it was a him, his report, he didn't have any of the black box data from the car. And so the Springfield Police Department eventually requests that. And it's super interesting. Mike puts this in his book, and I had no idea about this. But for a lot of bigger vehicles, if they're going to record information like that, it usually has to be a bigger impact because if you think about like how big his truck was like a GMC Denali and it's a pretty big truck. So even being rear-ended and having kind of his back smashed of his truck, their car was a lot more damaged than his truck was because the truck is sort of made to take the brunt of that impact. Oh yeah. And so even though, you know, he was hit in the back and the back of his truck like squished up Overall, like, you know, his truck is still fine from like, you know, the front forward. And so mm-hmm. at least according to Mike and his expert, it probably wasn't enough of an impact 
to record this data. So they only had the data from Crufit's car, but that's okay because that's super interesting data that they have and they were able to get. So there's only about five minutes or excuse me, five seconds of data before the impact happened. And so at the five second mark, the car is completely stopped or they believe it's completely stopped because the data is showing that it was zero miles per hour. So obviously probably not moving. He stopped, but then about three and a half seconds before the impact, that's at kind of the midpoint between, you know, pre-impact and impact. And Crufit has already put his foot down on the accelerator at the four second mark, but at three and a half seconds, he floored it and he kept his foot on the accelerator, just flooring it until the point of impact. And so at no point during that five seconds from pre-impact to impact, no point did he ever put his foot on the brake. He actually put his foot on the gas and just floored it into the back of Gerald's truck. So this obviously called into question a lot about the accident itself and kind of what caused it. I think this shows a little bit more of a benefit to Gerald, you know, because what he's told the 911 operator and what he's told people since day one is that Crufit just hit him out of nowhere and hit him on purpose. And then everything escalated. And there's obviously with this evidence, there's some truth to that because there's no, there's no reason for him to, for Crufit to be at a complete stop and then floor his car when he is directly behind Gerald, because obviously you can't go through a car <laughs> to keep going in the road. You know, like if you're, if you clearly see that you're behind a car, most people in their right, right. mind are not going to floor it into the back of the car. You know, m- most people, I, I'm sure that there are some people who would. <laughs> yeah. So according to the defense's reconstruction expert, Gerald had actually been stopped to the right side of Crufit's car. And so Crufit, Crufit kind of hit him at an angle from the back. And so that's why the back was pushed up on the right side is because of the way it, it had been angled. And so that again, kind of lends credence to what Gerald's saying. Cause again, when the law enforcement expert was looking at it, they were looking at it in the frame of Gerald's in the middle of his road rage episode and he cuts him off and all of this. And it's hard to argue that somebody at least at that moment, cut him off because Crufit was completely stopped and then, you know, smashed into the back of him. So obviously everything we talked about just now was super important, but what really is important for the defense or the claim of self-defense is how reasonable Gerald's actions were, you know, because it's, it's not like, He's saying, you know, Crufit got out of the car, he got out of his car, and they got into this big scuffle. And, you know, they got into this big fight, but everybody was fine. It's like they obviously both got out of their cars at some point, but then it escalated into this shooting. So was that right. action reasonable? 
So, of course, you know, it was Mike's job to argue that what he did was reasonable because what Crufit did was unreasonable. Because again, for most people, I think you're not going to, you may get out of your car to kind of confront the person. I, I would argue that a lot of people in this day and age probably aren't because a lot of people have guns that you don't know about. And so it's really scary to confront people. But for the sake of argument, I think we could see people getting out of their car to confront somebody. But I think if somebody shows you a gun, you're probably going to back and go back in your car and leave or (laughs) especially if you don't have a gun. (laughs) Right. Like if you have, yeah, no, I'm just, crab yeah, walk I'm getting backwards, in my car. Like, like I'm just okay. leaving. Okay. Um, and then, you know, here. just like waiting for police to come. Yeah. All that kind of stuff. Yeah. But you know, what Mike is saying is he, he didn't do that. You know, he kept coming at Gerald, even though Gerald had this gun. And like you said, he didn't have a gun. So like, what are you doing? That was like the big takeaway in Mike's mind is like, what was he doing? Yeah. And so I did want to point out just a couple of things that were briefly mentioned just as kind of like alternatives that Mike would need to have at the ready for trial. And one of them is why Gerald just didn't get back in his car and drive away or drive to the police station. And apparently the truck wouldn't start after the accident. And so he couldn't go anywhere. And he had actually said at one point to the 911 dispatcher, she told him to get in his own car, like get back in his truck and lock the doors because, you know, she could hear that Crufit was still coming towards him, all of that. And he tells her at one point, like he can't because Crufit is that close to him and his vehicle that he can't get back into his car. And then I, I do want to briefly mention you had brought up it was determined that Crufit didn't actually have a weapon. He just threatened Gerald and told him that he had one, um, but he didn't actually have anything. And I think that's important, but it's also like, I think for the most part, most people are going to believe somebody if they say they have a gun. Yeah. I'm not going to test it. You know, <laughs> maybe you don't have a gun, but like, I don't really want to find out if you do or you don't. Mm-hmm. So Getting inside the mind of Gerald was incredibly important for kind of understanding his reasonableness was this self-defense. And one of the ways we do that is what we just kind of talked about, whether or not his actions were reasonable, given what Crufit was doing. And then the other piece is how did Gerald's background in you know the military as a Marine, as kind of a mercenary How did that all frame, you know, his actions that he took that night? And there was definitely some really interesting stories and conversations in Mike's book. But overall, when he spoke to Gerald and he spoke to other people, more often than not, even when Gerald was in the Marines and he was working as a mercenary, he decided more often than not, not to shoot people. And so shooting people wasn't his first go-to. And I think we can see that even in this case, like he gave Crufit many, many opportunities to back off, to walk away. Like shooting wasn't his first instinct. I think it's also important to note that 
there was only one shot fired. So I found this super interesting for a couple of reasons. One is Mike brought up the fact that when you're trained as a law enforcement personnel, you're trained to just unload your weapon on the person. You're not trained to just shoot once and kind of back off. You're trained to unload your weapon on the person. And so that Mm. part was super interesting to me that he only fired one shot. So Mike spoke with a expert in the military that kind of had Marine training, had sniper training, all of that. And one of the things he said was, quote, Gerald's one shot was an attempt to stop the threat, not to kill. It wasn't a rage reaction and he wasn't trying to eliminate the threat. Just stop it. End quote. And I found that statement like super powerful, which is why Mm. I wanted to include it is because I think, again, it really frames his state of mind. And I think it lends itself to the self-defense argument because it was just this one shot. And this is also what makes me question whether or not he actually intended to shoot him in the head or the face or, you know, that region, Um, just because it did seem like he was trying to stop him from getting closer to him. So I almost feel like maybe he misjudged like where proof it was in terms of like height wise, just a misperception on that. Cause I think there's a lot of times where like, I can feel like somebody's six feet tall and then they get close to me and they're like five, five or something, you know, just a lot of misperception on that part. So again, I don't know that that's just my own speculation, but it does make me wonder like if he was really just like Mm -hmm. almost shooting anywhere to get this guy to like back off. Yeah, but obviously, if you get like a warning shot, shot maybe close ish range with a rifle, like it's not going to end well for you. And one other thing that I noted was Gerald was a gun owner. um, And he actually had, I think, I didn't write this in here, but if I'm remembering correctly, it was like six or eight guns in the car besides the rifle that he shot. And so um, he had some in like the console. He had like bullets everywhere. Just like it made me think. And I was glad that like Mike followed it up with this, where he said, you know, to a responsible gun owner, it's not super unusual for him to have that many guns and to have like bullets everywhere. But for somebody who doesn't own guns and doesn't really understand, it just looks like, oh my God, this guy was like ready to shoot somebody that night. So he did ask Gerald, you know, why did you go for the rifle as opposed to the handgun that was in the console or whatever? And basically what Mike ended up finding out through, you know, talking to the, talking to the defense experts, talking to Gerald more, kind of pressing more on Gerald is that that was the rough rifle he was most or the weapon he was most comfortable with because it was the closest to his military kind of weapon. So it was an AR-15 that he grabbed and it was close to his military sniper rifle it's winston (laughs) i I know she loves it so for him it was almost like second nature to grab that because that's just what he's used to using and comfortable using and so it almost was like yes he was in a pain right yeah like yes he was panicked and he was like just an instinct um so i don't like after reading that i was kind of like okay i could see that you know like 
it also, for me, it kind of makes sense just on a more intimidating level too. Like, I mean, I personally am going to be afraid of any gun that you're shooting at me, but (laughs) I'm going to be especially afraid of like you having this huge rifle pointing at me, you know, like that's definitely more intimidating. And I think that that was kind of Mike's point was that, you know, we start from the very beginning where they get out of the car. Krufit's still coming at him. So he has the rifle and he's thinking, okay, like I have this rifle, like I'm going to, you know, stand in my intimidating pose with my rifle and like, he's going to back off and then he doesn't. And so like, that's where we sort of escalate and why we escalate. And so I definitely think that that was an important like piece to, to talk about was just the fact that I think even at the very beginning, his goal was to intimidate, not to hurt. Because again, for most people, if you see somebody get out of their car with a huge rifle, you're going to back off. And I mean, I will say too, that the huge caveat is obviously Krufit being incredibly intoxicated with alcohol, with, you know, his medication and all that. He obviously was not acting in a reasonable or normal frame of mind. And unfortunately, that's, you know, what cost him his life. But I think it's also like, it explains a lot of like, why he probably did what he did. Because I, I don't think that if he were sober, that this would have ended that way. Well, his inhibitions were lowered. The gun, I'm just speculating. He wasn't in his normal mind frame. He probably wasn't as scared. He was with that blood alcohol level. We know he wasn't in his normal mindset. So it's just, I went to okay. you're adorable, but I mean, that makes sense. Like he wasn't, yeah, he probably wasn't as scared as he should have been. An excellent point because I just think not to make this about myself, but I just think back to, you know, times when I've been like super drunk, it's like you were talking about earlier. Like you could, you think so highly and the world of yourself, like you think you can do anything, you know, and everything sounds like a great idea because you don't have those like impulse controls that you would normally have if you weren't intoxicated. And so, Mm -hmm. like you said, you aren't as afraid as you should be. Like maybe he didn't even realize that it was a rifle that he had. Exactly. He might not have even seen straight. Who knows? Well, and it you could know, almost his be too like, like at that point. He obviously was making up the fact that he had a gun. So maybe he thought Gerald was making up the fact that he had a gun too. You know, so it's like, okay, if you're gonna say you have one, I'm gonna yeah. say I have one too. Like yeah. um it just I mean, it was obviously like we are talking about exactly. just a terrible set of circumstances, just like perfect storm of clashing. It really is. It Um, really is. So there's a couple kind of pre-trial proceedings that I just wanted to briefly discuss. And I do want to note that again, Gerald kind of spent this whole pre-trial time in jail and this was county jail. This was not prison. This was not, it was not a nice place. Jails aren't really meant to Mm -hmm. hold people for extended periods of time. And so it wasn't a great experience for him, but all of Mike's requests for bail were denied and they Hmm. they had a hearing about 
kind of the bad acts evidence that we've talked about earlier with, you know, the ex-wife and friends and acquaintances that had kind of these run-ins with him. And unfortunately, there really wasn't any decision that was made out of that as to whether or not they'd be included as evidence because there was a big Supreme Court case at the Oregon Supreme Court that was like looking at that particular issue and the admissibility of that bad acts evidence. And the court didn't really decide the issue. And so there was really nothing for the judge to do. And so unfortunately that kind of left Mike and Gerald in a a tough spot because they really didn't know how that evidence was going to be treated, if it was going to come in or not. But if it does come in, it's kind of like worst case scenario. It makes Gerald look terrible. So they decide to have a settlement conference with the prosecution. And I didn't talk about this earlier, but one of the crimes that Gerald was indicted of was murder, which obviously is the most serious offense. And then there were also manslaughter one and manslaughter two. All of those are mandatory minimum sentences that they carry. And so it's just X number of months is what you get when you're either found guilty of or you plead to those charges. So as part of the settlement conference, and I, it wasn't super clear just because it was a lot of, you know, Mike's perspective, but the DA did come down to manslaughter too. So they did take murder off the table, which was, which was obviously the most serious of all the crimes Mm. that he was charged with. And they, the DA eventually came down to criminally negligent homicide, which is what Mike really wanted because even though he felt like there was a good case to be made, it's still always taking a gamble and you might just be that unlucky where you get that jury that doesn't believe you or believe your side of things. So this was sort of best case scenario. It was going to be 60 months and then he'd be, you know, out and free. They did eventually get it knocked down to 58 months, but then he also get, you know, he was of the understanding that he would probably serve less than that because he'd already been in prison for two years at that point. He would get credit for time served because it's not a mandatory minimum. Criminally negligent homicide isn't one of those crimes. And so he could get credit for good behavior. And then he could also participate in the alternative incarceration program, which would also allow him to get an early release. So for Gerald, it was like, yes, he's pleading to 58 months, but he's already served a little over 24 or around 24. You know, he's going to get credit for good behavior. As long as he's not getting into fights, he could get into this early release program. So it was kind of in their mind thinking, okay, ultimately he's probably going to serve two years with all that other stuff going the right way. So when he was sentenced uh, in May of 2015, he was then sent to Eastern Oregon to the Snake River Correctional Facility, which um, is kind of along the Oregon-Idaho border, kind of way out there in Eastern Oregon. Nobody goes there. And in June 2016, he was approved for that alternative incarceration program. And that ended up allowing him to be released from prison in 2017. But... About eight months after his release in April 2018, 
Gerald was arrested for sexually assaulting an underage female who was just 14. And he was convicted after a week-long trial. He was sentenced to two years and four months in prison, followed by two years and eight months of probation. And of course, he would have to register as a sex offender once he was released. So he was a martial arts, either coach or trainer. I read kind of both, um, but they they kind of are the same thing in this context, at least. I did too. Um, but definitely like in a position of authority over this person. And obviously he was like 40 something at the time. You have no business doing anything near anything with a 14 year old at that age. So no, but there was also some allegations when he was going through the trial that he did something similar to a 15 year old as well. Um, But I didn't see if he was ever charged with anything related to that, or if he was ever convicted of anything. And I also couldn't find out if he has been released from prison. I assume he has, but I also don't know. I've seen no recent articles on him. So yeah, I, I think didn't the last see article I read was either. from 2019. It's- and obviously he still would have been in prison at that point, but yeah, I, I don't know what happened right. to him. Yeah. Yeah. yeah I don't just, know where it, he like, is right now. It blows my mind though, because I'm just like, how did you go from this road rage incident where you actually got this like pretty good deal, all things considered, to then like you're out for eight months and then you go back for something gross? I know. And this is like what I was talking about earlier. I haven't seen any comment from Mike about these most recent allegations. And Mm -hmm. Obviously, his blog. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I well, I went. I think it's like his name is his website where he's talking about the yeah, book. I, I mean, didn't read I mean, anything at all about that. He thing obviously either. doesn't have to comment. Like it didn't seem like he represented Gerald, at least from what yeah. I could tell. Yeah, he didn't have to defend. Him I on personally this. thought it was interesting just because he talks about in his book at the very end how much time he spent writing Gerald when he was like still in prison. And I mean, he obviously spent this whole like two year period with him. So he got to know him pretty well. So I think it would just be interesting to kind of like see that perspective, you know, but I mean, it also kind of makes sense that you wouldn't really want to go near that. Yeah. Like you're saying, I wonder if he, all that time around him, if he ever, of course he's a man, he probably didn't see him with women I wonder if he just ever got that, like, he said some creepy things or off-color remarks about women or girls or teenagers or just, you know what I mean? Something where you're like, oh, that's, that's a kind of weird thing to say. Yeah, it's weird. But it's, we'll it's probably never say that because answer. I feel like when it comes to offenders and underage victims, there definitely is, like, that creepy vibe and like they there's been something that they've said or done that's been creepy whereas like if you're looking at not to like condone any of it but I think if you're a 40 year old man with a 40 year old woman there's gonna be less of that like creepy like there still can be creepy but like anything you say suggestive or sexual about a 14 year old when you're 40 is Yeah, always gross, always inappropriate, like should never be done. If you're saying like the same kind of thing about someone who is like your own age, it's 
obviously still creepy, but it's it doesn't have that same like extra creepy, you know? Yeah. It's, <sighs> so mm-hmm. I don't know what Gerald's doing, um, but hopefully he's trying to stay out of jail and trying to stop being creepy. I mean, I don't I actually so. know how to do this, oh. but assuming he did what he's supposed to, you could probably still find him on the sex offender sex offender registry. Oh, yeah, I'm that's sure. like a lifetime. Yeah. yeah. He has to. And I actually register. think um, it's a crime yeah. for you not to do that too. Like you can be in trouble. It's, I think it's like a parole violation. Mm-hmm. I don't know what the laws are there, but like in Arkansas, if you don't register as a sex offender, they look for you. If they yeah. find you, you're, I don't know what all the rules are, but you're in trouble pretty much. So yeah, you're, you've pretty much got to stay registered. I mean, plenty of people don't. But they're having to yeah. constantly hide or be under the radar. So probably be hard for him to get away with that with his history. But who knows? <laughs> Especially if he's living like off the grid near the Idaho border. Who knows what he's up to? I know. But just yeah, wild. I'm, thank you for wanting to do this case with me. It was super interesting. Yeah. Thanks for bringing it to my attention. I'm surprised. So there's a podcast called Crime and Sports. The same two guys that do small town murder do it. And I was actually surprised from what I could tell. They've never covered Gerald before. Kind of surprised me because I'm like, oh, they've definitely covered this, but not that I can tell. But even when I first Googled it (laughs) and was like, I need to ask her if this is the right name, because I just kept seeing UFC pictures. Like, I'm like, this is not a true crime case. There's like a picture (laughs) of him with Joe Rogan back in the early 2000s or whatever. I'm like. I don't think this is the right person. It's almost kind of hard to find, not hard, but the first few articles that pop yeah. up are his MMA stuff. Well, and then it's not yeah, really so like I Googled because oh, I Lord, had just come across like his um like Wikipedia page because I was just trying to see like because so the book was released mm-hmm. while he was still incarcerated. And so they didn't have like the post-incarceration okay. stuff. So I obviously like knew he was out of prison and wanted to find out like when he was released and all that. And so when I Googled it, sure. the MMA stuff came up, but then right after that was the sexual abuse stuff. And so yeah. like you had to go like further down to get yes. to, like actually this particular incident, yeah. which is just like so crazy to me because again, obviously yeah, not that's like exactly. A malicious murder but like he still killed somebody yeah <laughs> it's still yeah he's yeah still, like yeah, exactly he still killed someone he committed a crime a worse crime and then he went on to <laughs> do yeah. purposeful purposeful crimes you know what i mean like where there's no way to weasel yourself out of that there's just like you you're guilty for you're I don't, I didn't read what he did. Not that it even matters what he did to the 14 yeah. year old, but it's like, there's yeah, bad news. But yeah, that article popped up first before the, the manslaughter yeah, I mean, I guess murder. Part of that could probably be it's, like, it's, it's wild. happened more recently, but I mean, it still is like, yeah, not a great end to your story. No, not at all. When he could have had this, oh, I'm off. It's it. You're like what you said earlier. Eight months, he's just like, okay, well. And from what I could tell, he had, he, I don't know if he owned the gym or if he worked at the gym, but he was still like a trainer and involved in, in MMA training and stuff and fighting. It's just, you have to be like, why? Why do you have to do stuff like this? But 
there's a lot of those people that will never know that answer. We mainly have a female audience. We do have some <laughs> men that listen, but I'm like, maybe this will draw on a different audience. I don't know. Like there's some fun facts of MMA in here, but yeah, it's, it's really wild. After this, I might spiral and just try to see if I can find him online or I don't know. I didn't even fa- think of Facebooking him. That's something I do sometimes. Let's try to find people on Facebook. That would be almost kind of weird if it was that easy know. where he's just like, oh, <laughs> it's me. It's my Facebook page. Thanks for meeting with me. You look, it looks. Yeah. Thank you for the invite. Of course, you look cozy. Is it, how hot is it there? Like what's your temp? It is not today. We're probably about 69-ish. Gosh, let me see. It's 91 <laughs> right now. And it's almost 70. <laughs> it's so hot. I'm so, so a nice day in Washington sounds fabulous. Oh my goodness. Yes. You and Ashley are welcome anytime. Oh, I would love to be there right about now, honestly. But yeah, thanks for filling in. She'll I'm be- sure Charlie would appreciate it too. Oh, he's already <laughs> left the room. He's like, this is ridiculous. He, he's, he, even the fall is too hot for him. He wants, give me a 15 degree February day is his jam. But oh yeah, that's that was Oakley uh, too. Like he just had so much fur. Like exactly. My boyfriend, my boyfriend talks to me about how cold I keep it in here, and I was like, "Yeah, but Oakley would have loved it." Like uh, he, because he his little bed by the the door was like right where the cold air uh, would blow. Yeah, he just loved it. Funny, <laughs> my cats love this heat. They're nuts. They're just they're oh yeah. Winston's so sun. happy to sit in the sun. It's crazy to me, but oh, <laughs> I'm like, I can't. <laughs> oh gosh. Well, well, I'll let you go so you can turn your AC back on. I, I feel so bad. No, I, I am red. quite red. It's a good <laughs> thing. I'm not a YouTube uh, person, but be- real quick, <laughs> I will link up your Instagram, Facebook and website and all that fun stuff in our show notes. But just in case people don't want to look at that, where can they find you? <laughs> Yes, you can find us anywhere that you can find United States of Murder on all the podcast platforms. And we are on Instagram at True Crime Cat Lawyer, Twitter at True Crime Cat Law, and we're on Facebook, of course. And yeah, you can email us at True Crime Cat Lawyer at gmail.com. Yes. And Winston is the beautiful face of your <laughs> podcast. Yes, indeed she, she is. I have a, her sticker on my laptop right now. I was about to turn around my computer. Aww. I can't do that. I'm, <laughs> she's on the back. Yes. So follow along. Maybe you'll even get a sticker of Winston if you're lucky enough. Yes. <laughs> All right. It's a secret. Bye.